This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Hi, I'm Hanif Baharudin and you're listening to Night School, the show that explores ideas and themes in the social sciences and the humanities. I'm joined by Simon Soon and our guest of the week, Viola Petrella. You're a postgraduate researcher and practitioner in design and innovation. And I think that's the subject that we're going to be discussing about today, right? Thanks for coming on the show, Viola. Thanks for inviting me. Well, well, let's start with this sort of like big word that's been used to sort of like describe what you do, right? Social innovation and design. And how's that even sort of like related and what do they actually sort of like mean? All right. So social innovation is a phenomenon that finds solutions to problems, societal problems, that neither the market nor the governments have been able to solve, right? And the way that design comes into that is that whatever design can do as a discipline to support social innovation, that is design and social innovation. And it has been given many names mm-hmm. over over the years. It's a relatively recent topic of discussion, especially in academia. Okay. And it's very practice-based. Okay. And it's very strongly contextually based. Mm-hmm. So what is considered socially innovative somewhere might not be considered a social innovation elsewhere. Mm-hmm. But it's it's been called, you know, transformation design, social design, transition design, all sorts of all sorts of names just right. to basically define this idea that design contributes to new solutions for social problems. Mm-hmm. And we often think of design as, you know, uh, with an output that is more aesthetic, right? Uh, on some level, you can think of graphic design or something that produces a more tangible sort of like output or industrial design where you're actually designing furniture. Uh, how is, you know, thinking about the social, which is, which I imagine the basic unit of analysis is the relationship, design in any Wait, maybe you can help us to ground this a bit more and explain further? Of course. Uh, this is actually a very common sort of indecision that people have around design or doubt or misconception. Mm. So a lot of the times when I tell people that I'm a designer, people say, oh, so you make chairs. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> that's, that's what is automatically yeah. thought of when people think about design. But... Actually, design can be applied to many different things, can be applied to processes, can be applied to services. It can be and also it can be more sort of traditional types of design like graphic design. But then they are made to support the work in, uh, say, a community that you're working with on a specific social problem. Mm -hmm. For example, I'll give you an example of services, right? So you can have within a neighborhood or within a city, you might have a number of people who need certain tools to work in the house, right? The usual things, you know, maybe you need a shovel for your garden mm-hmm. or, a, you know, a screwdriver, those types of things. And then there's there's people who have those tools and people who need those tools. And one social innovation would be, for example, an app that okay. allows people to put out the tools that they might want to lend mm-hmm. and allows people who need them to rent them or to just to borrow them. Mm-hmm. And this is just a small example of how something that is very hard for the market to to solve because it's not necessarily something that people are willing to pay for, okay. right, to rent a screwdriver. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is also not really sustainable in many ways if you just buy a screwdriver to use it once, okay. right? So that's how social innovation 
is able to maybe come in and fix that problem mm -hmm. without it becoming necessarily a market solution and without it being sort of a more top-down intervention from a government because the government doesn't really concern itself with these types of problems. Ah, right? I understand. So I think if I was to sort of imagine this, so in the not so sort of like distant past, I think there's a name for this sort of like role, right? Uh, I think on some level, on a different scale, we used to call them consultants, uh, <laughs> right? And and they would normally have in the post-Thatcherite sort of like period, a PPE sort of like degree, and they would also not work necessarily with the government, but with a sort of like, you know, a semi-independent sort of like organization that then gets parachuted into sort of do the kind of intervention work. You know, how is social innovation then different from this? the role of like, you know, what consultants used to play. Because I sense there is a difference, maybe in terms of scale, but also I think it's also a kind of like thinking process that's also quite different. So um, just to clarify, when you're saying consultant, how, how do you feel that they would do a consulting? So uh, I guess it's more a process in which they intervene and, and create solutions. Right, uh, and normally they would be an outside, a sort of like uh, someone who is not sort of like part of, the issue to mm. sort of offer a, a kind of solution to okay. the, to the um, so do you roughly so get yeah what I, I yeah I understand yeah. what you're saying and, or I you mean, would do it from a maybe social science sort of like disciplinary kind of like framework where you have a sociologist and coming in to offer I don't know solutions to a question that look at a local community is trying, trying to solve sure I mean that that is definitely part of what I do mm -hmm. um, when when I work as a as a professional not as a researcher what I do is mostly consulting engagements mm -hmm. sometimes it's for the local government who wants to engage people in a certain project and so they call me in to do that through design sometimes it's a foundation that funds a project so there's definitely an element of consultancy there okay. but um, social innovation and even design and social innovation are more than that okay so there's uh, there's an element of community-based work mm -hmm. as well that doesn't require necessarily the presence of someone external because mm -hmm. arguably social innovation has been going on for ages mm -hmm. you know forever you know since since there's been maybe a market and a, and a government that mm -hmm. cannot fix things social innovation has been the way that people have solved problems mm -hmm. or propose new ideas but it's just the way that we're calling it now that has that has changed mm -hmm. you know there's this new way there's this new term we use social innovation to describe a phenomenon mm -hmm. that has been happening for a really long time mm -hmm. and design as well is a bit like that so okay. you can argue that well there are some people who say that Everybody designs to some extent, right? It is it is a quite a common position now. If you think of things that are also applied to business, like design thinking, which mm. is this mm. other side of design right. that is just concerned with maybe business innovation as well. That's right, and, and that's been co-opted into a kind of like commercial language as well. Exactly, right. exactly. Yeah. That has been sort of simplified, right. in my opinion, a bit too much. Okay. So there's an oversimplification of what design thinking is, and then it's been co-opted into the sort of startup um, Mm. language and methodologies and the uh, business innovation space. So that's that's one side of it. But people have been designing in many ways for a very long time. Okay. So one of the things that I'm concerned with in my research is the different ways in which 
we do and we understand design. Mm. So sometimes design, it's the design of a chair, mm. right? And sometimes design, it's a cultural practice. Okay. Sometimes design is a spiritual practice mm -hmm. in some in some places. Mm. Uh, sometimes it's a very um, it's a practice that is really grounded in community and relationship. Mm -hmm. So this is this is what I'm interested in with my research. I investigate the role of relationships in okay. design and social innovation. Mm -hmm. Do you concern yourself more with solving problems or creating new solutions to or new innovations that might enhance the lives of people? Or do you usually look at things in a problem-solving way? Mm. That's because, a really good um, question. Yeah, I, that's a really nice question to ask because then uh, there's another side of design that's really that people are really talking about and that's speculative design, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so where does it sit within this conversation? Of course. So solving problems is one part of it. I think what is interesting to look at particularly is that every time that we say there is a problem and we define a problem, we're also implicitly making statements about the solution, right? So every time that I analyze a situation looking for a problem, I'm going to find a problem because problems are everywhere. Mm -hmm. And depending on who looks at the situation, you're going to see different problems. Mm -hmm. So it is a matter of proposing solutions. Yes, it is a matter of solving problems. But I kind of try and keep engaging with this idea that whoever analyzes the situation sees a problem with their own eyes. So they're going to see a problem from their own perspective. That's why I'm so interested in participatory design and community-based projects, it's because then you have the possibility to sort of bring more people into not even the solution of the problem, but even before that, the identification of the problem. Mm. And even even before then, just the identification <coughs> of a community, right? Okay. Right. So you maybe you have just a bunch of people who don't really identify as a community yet, mm -hmm. but they just have a common feeling that something is off. Okay. All right. For example, a group of neighbors, mm -hmm. the only thing they have in common is that they live in the same place. Mm -hmm. And they maybe have a feeling that there is something not quite right in the neighborhood. Mm. And so they come together and they discuss and they find a problem which is based in their own understanding of the neighborhood. Mm. Right. And then they might engage with design to find solutions. Okay. And they might produce a solution to that problem they identified, which is a social innovation. I see. So, like, I guess maybe you can help us to understand this a bit clearer. I think for the layperson, design at the back of our mind is still very sort of like connected to either the visual or the tactile kind of like output. So how would you think of design in this sort of like sense of the term? What is the element that is designing? Mm -hmm. The designish, yeah, or or designery. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, you can, for example, well, a lot of what I do mm -hmm. is facilitating meetings. Okay. Which is now considered an integral part of design, especially when you consider uh, the design of uh, services, for mm -hmm. example. So I help people come together in ways that feel productive, of course. Because we've all been in the situation where there's an endless meeting that doesn't seem to go anywhere, right? Mm. So sometimes a facilitator is needed. And it's going back to what you were saying earlier. It's that sort of external person who comes in and tries to sort of, yeah, make, make the conversation easier, mm -hmm. right? Sometimes it's an external person. Sometimes it isn't. But nevertheless. And then sometimes it's about producing tools that mm. people can use. 
maps, for example, helping people to map, going back to the example of the neighborhood, helping people to map their neighborhood mm. through a series of tools that are, you know, maps and uh, maybe they use a little bit of sort of ethnographic research as well. Maybe they are given a camera so they can walk around and take pictures of what mm. they think is relevant. Then they come back, they have a discussion. So all of these things can be can be considered design tools. Mm. And then sometimes it's the downright production of things that, for example, provide information, right? Mm -hmm. So it's designing leaflets. Mm. It's uh, designing the, we call it information architecture. So mm -hmm. sort of putting information in a way that is readily understandable by who reads and calls people to action. Mm. So all of these things can be considered part of design now. And design is not limited just to the design of products anymore mm. or of buildings. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm very sort of like fascinated by this expanded sort of like view of design only because like on the one hand, you have a lot of design schools that are still that might be accommodating uh, this sort of like expanded form of practice. But nevertheless, there is a core sort of like curriculum that's still sort of like centered on, I guess, a more sort of like conventional sort of like idea of what design is. So how are you pushing this conversation within the discipline of design itself? Ooh, that's a, <laughs> that's a big question. Okay. Um, I agree with what you say. Um, there is, so I studied architecture, mm -hmm. right? Um, at the beginning, and then I studied urban design and planning. Okay. So these are quite broad, especially urban design, it's quite a broad discipline compared to designing very sort of detail-oriented, smaller things like products, right? Um, and I felt quite disappointed by the silo organization okay. of every university I've been to. Okay. So silo, when uh, I was, like, like the silo. Yeah, sorry. Oh, yeah, silo yeah, yeah, is yeah, the way yeah, we pronounce yeah, yeah, it in yeah, Italian. Yeah, okay. but silo. Yeah. yeah, yeah okay. um, yeah. So there's this idea that design disciplines <coughs> should not interact one with the others in many universities. So when I was studying in Milan, quite surprisingly to me, when I first arrived there, the design department and the architecture department were in two completely different parts of the city, mm. even. So they oh, never wow. got to interact. And as a design, as a former as a former architecture student, I could not access the design masters as easily as a design student, which was mind-boggling to me. It, right. it didn't make any sense. So there is definitely a difficulty in integrating disciplines. But I think the more, especially in the past years, there's been much more focus on integrating disciplines. Mm -hmm. I like I liked my urban design, design masters because it, a lot of the time we were encouraged to think of urban design as service design. Okay. So the idea that you would be able to think of a city as a service to the citizens, mm -hmm. as a service to the urban dwellers, mm -hmm. as opposed to just a series of roads and buildings mm -hmm. that are put there because somebody looked at a map from, from the top mm -hmm. and saw a whole city underneath and, and thought, oh, this block will go here, this block will go there, and they will have this and this function, right? Mm -hmm. um, but there is definitely a lot of room for improvement in terms yeah. of integration between different design disciplines. So, yeah, we know that, you know, at an institutional level, things probably, at an academic institutional level, things probably move at a very glacial place. <laughs> but I also understand that, 
you have also explored, you know, spaces that are outside of the academia in order to explore, you know, uh, how you can communicate or share uh, what you're interested in. And maybe we can sort of like explore this after the break. So um, let's take a break first. Uh, you're listening to Night School with me, Hanif Baharudin and Simon Soon. And this week we're joined by Viola Petrella, a postgraduate researcher and practitioner in design and innovation. Stay tuned, BFM 89.9. BFM 89.9, you're tuning in to Night School with me, Hanif Baharudin. I'm joined by Simon Soon and our guest of the week, Viola Petrella, a postgraduate researcher and practitioner in design and innovation. And I think we stopped the first part of the conversation talking about uh, spaces, right? And mm-hmm. I think one of the things that I'm curious about, you know, looking at spaces is like, how do you incorporate the social element into invigorating a space, right? Especially, um, you know, based on your background. Yeah, um, I, I like this question a lot because it gives me the opportunity to talk about an organization that I founded in Italy, mm-hmm. um, in my hometown, actually. So um, some years ago, I think it was 2015, I co-founded an organization with a fellow architect and we mapped the abandoned spaces in our hometown. So this is not a big city. We're talking about maybe 80,000 people. So it's it's a small place. But we found more than 180 abandoned spaces. Oh wow! Okay. Uh, so it's it's a lot. It's a lot of square meters. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> a and lot of what lot form of space. would they take? Uh, are they buildings or are they factories? Or so some of them are former factories. Okay. Um, the city has a sort of a glorious past of um, industrial production that then sort of declined, um, and there were a lot of factories that were just empty. Mm-hmm. A lot of them are also contaminated. We produced a lot of textile, I believe, mm-hmm. and the chemicals used to produce the textiles were just polluting the ground in ways that are probably irreparable now. Mm-hmm. So that's one issue. But there's also a lot of space that has a really high turnover, right? So a lot of shops that open and close because they can't stay open for some reason, which is maybe that the town doesn't have that much money or maybe they get a lot of competition from the online mm. uh, businesses. There's many reasons, right, and they overlap. But the way that we looked at it is that there are so many initiatives within the community that are looking for a space. So, you know, there's groups of people who organize activities, and sometimes they're really important activities, you know, things like having children play after school when the parents are still working and they cannot go and pick them up. Mm-hmm. Right. And there are people who do this type of stuff. There's organizations that have, again, organized activities, sports activities, for example, or activities for people who have disabilities. Right. Um, okay. So all of these solutions to problems, I guess, mm-hmm. that are quite difficult to market, mm-hmm. not because there isn't a market for them, but because not everyone can access the market. Not mm-hmm. everyone can afford right, paying for these services. So one way that we proposed we should go about it is for the spaces that are owned by the government, why don't they give them for free to these organizations Mm -hmm. in exchange for them keeping the space open and doing it up, right? So fixing the space. Maybe sometimes they're quite run down, but with a little bit of community effort, then things can go better. Or maybe there could be tax discounts, for private owners who decide to give their space for a lesser amount of money just because they can't never rent it. So it's better to rent it for three months at half the price than to never rent it, right? Right. But we did encounter quite a lot of resistance 
not from the citizens who were really happy, but from the government. Okay. And I think most of that was because you need to really take the time to build a culture around this. Mm. Right? How um, did you sort of like, you know, get them to sort of see otherwise? Unfortunately, we didn't quite manage to do that just, just yet. yet. Okay. Um, so there's there's also been quite a lot of turmoil in terms of local government where I where I am. There's also just been elections. So, you know, things change quite quickly. Sometimes people take longer to sort of get into the mentality mm. of social innovation than a government lasts. Okay. So sometimes there's, there's that turnover before you get to convince the people of the validity and worth of a project. Right. Um, that said, this is an example of social innovation, mm -hmm. right? So looking at space in the city, not as sort of an empty void that needs to be filled with whatever it is, but as an opportunity for people who don't have the means to mm -hmm. rent a space, mm -hmm. To still realize or make a service happen for those who then again don't have the means to access it otherwise. Mm. I hope that answers your question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And on some level, I'm going to sort of maybe push you a bit further is to think about uh, what kind of genealogies does this <coughs> discipline actually imagines itself to be in conversation with, right? Uh, intellectual genealogy, I mean. Uh, I know it's a new field, and I think uh, you've sort of like, you know, highlighted that that it's also something that's emerging. Uh, but nevertheless, I imagine that it also draws on the strength of some kind of like deep thinking that goes on, that has gone on for many, many, many years. Uh, you've said also that uh, design is something inherent almost. Uh, you know, everyone has a, this sort of like design sensibility. Uh, what kind of past knowledge are you sort of like drawing into your sort of like present practice? Do you look at the history of sort of like anarchism? Are you sort of like looking at specific sort of like cultural movements in the past that have also tend to sort of like focus on self-organizing as a sort of like principle in which to then uh, address sort of like social issues and concerns? Yeah, self-organizing and decentralized organizing are definitely two things that I'm really interested in. And um, yeah, you're right when you talk about, you know, anarchism and sort of that um, Uh, legacy, mm -hmm. I guess, uh, which arguably it's not even a legacy because it's still ongoing right, um, right, in, yeah. in many ways, mm -hmm. right? Um, But I imagine you also sort of like distinguish yourself in saying that, hey, this day and age, we are answering to different sets of needs and questions and therefore social innovation is an approach. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's many so ways how? to look at that, right? right? So there's, uh, if you ask me personally, I'm quite excited at the idea that there is the potential for self-organizing in ways that are sort of grounded in reciprocal respect mm -hmm. and, and in a profound sort of sense of community. Not the sense of community that you get by putting a like on a Facebook page, mm -hmm. right? The sense of community that you get by actually engaging with the people who are around you. And I'm not saying that Facebook doesn't play a huge part in that mm -hmm. because as I've increasingly realized, especially by being here, social media have a huge potential in sort of driving attention towards these projects mm. um, in ways that probably are better practice here than mm. they are where I'm from. Okay. Uh, people seem to have a healthier relationship with their use of social media. Um, <laughs> 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 I just, I just noticed that a lot of people get, um, including myself, yeah. uh, got quite fed up 
with it uh-huh. and I've completely disengaged from it. But okay. now I kind of think that there is some positive side to it um, mm. in terms of getting the message to as many people oh, as possible, yeah, yeah, right? Definitely. Or short-circuiting, you know, official channels so that, you know, it's more direct sort of like relationship that you're able to build exactly. uh, with uh, other audiences that you want to cultivate. Mm. Yeah. yeah. You said just now that the people around were quite receptive, right, of the idea. But were there any intergenerational gaps when it comes to implementing this kind of like social innovation? Um, a lot of young people were enthusiastic about it. So you're right. And the older generations, it depends. So sometimes they are quite suspicious of of this, especially if they own property, because they feel that they're being sort of taken away, mm. uh, that something is being taken away or from they're them. They're shortchanged, right? yeah, in the whole sort of exchange. Yeah, exactly. Okay. I think maybe older generations are a bit more invested in their in their property, right? Mm. In a way that younger generations don't feel, mainly because right now with the economic situation that we have, young people know that they will likely never own property, right? right? So there's this sense of like, okay, if we can't own it, then let's share it. Mm. Whereas maybe um, people from previous generations are a bit more resistant to that. But then I really want to wait and see if that feeling of sharing stays as we age, because it might also be that when you when you actually inherit whatever property you get, then you get really, really possessive about it, right? Yeah. But yeah, there's also in terms of mentality, sometimes uh, younger people are, especially students, they have more time on, on their hands to volunteer. Okay. So if you ask them to get engaged with things, they will. But also older people do that. You know, retirees mm. are really happy to contribute to these things. It's just the midsection, mm. uh, you know, the people with families well, you who have are other so life priorities yeah, <laughs> that they don't. But, but then that's a shame because they are, they are the parents of children mm. who then a lot of the time can benefit from many of the services that can go in these places. And, and I think you do or did work on a project that addresses all these sort of like cross sections of like uh, the population, especially in your work in... Uh, bringing uh, people together to have a conversation about school, mm-hmm. right? Uh, can you tell us more about that and how this project has panned out? Sure. Um, so I'm working as a consultant for the lead partner mm-hmm. of a project that was funded by a foundation that works a lot with children and younger people. So we're talking in the range from maybe two years old to 18, something like that. So they're divided in different sections depending on what school they go to. And the project that we're working on engages kids who are in middle school. So it's that sort of strange age between being a child and being a teenager, Mm. 12, 13 years old. Um, And what we're doing is we go to schools in the province of my hometown And we engage with two classes at a time. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about maybe 40 kids at a time in the redesign of school services and spaces Mm -hmm. with the overarching aim of developing some sort of sense of belonging to the school that will then result in 
a reduction of early school leaving. Mm, okay. This comes with a series. This is not the only thing that we do to counter early school leaving, right? There are okay. other activities as well. Right, right, right. So, I mean, I imagine this is an engagement with a public school sort of like system. And we know that public school systems are as noble as it is. It's also a government sort of like institution. And what it does and why it fails so often is because of the scale in which, you know, you have to run, you know, public schools, right? And your, your intervention on, on the level that you have just described is so intimate. It's so sort of like personal. It's so one-on-one. How do you imagine something like this to have a ripple effect across, you know? Are you able to think of even scaling up a project like this? Or do you see this intervention as, uh, you know, are you managing expectation of your how you are how much you can intervene into this process? Um, so, the way that we're going about it, you're right when you say that it's a very local, intimate type of situation, mm-hmm. right? So we engage with eleven schools at the moment mm-hmm. from all around the province, and each of them has really specific characteristics that depend on what area they're in, the type of people, the type of families that surround the school, and then access the school services. Because like some some schools are in areas that are a bit more rich, maybe, and mm-hmm. um, where people enjoy more opportunities, are more privileged, and some schools are in communities that are quite under privileged I guess Mm -hmm. Um, so that's one element of it Um, engaging with the single specificities of each school has really driven me to think that maybe scaling up the project Mm -hmm. is not the main goal right or the right way of thinking about it yeah exactly it's not exactly the right way to go about Mm -hmm. it Because if this program becomes a very standardized practice Mm -hmm. then we risk of sort of you know painting some sort of project on each school without really seeing what the canvas is offering, right? Mm, So we're trying to really sort of localize our approach. Mm. At the same time, though, it is possible, I think, to think of ways to replicate the project. Okay. So maybe it's by giving some sort of like general idea of what the project would be like and then putting the project in the hands of facilitators, professionals like like me and my colleague, Mm -hmm. who are local. Both of us have lived in this place for a very long time. We know what's what and who's who, and we engage with the local specificities, right? Maybe each school is different, but we still all kind of speak the same language in a way. Mm -hmm. We're all all sort of surrounded by the same things. So I think that's very important, that if, if then it becomes a sort of a replicable program, whoever it is handed to Mm. has that kind of connection with the local environment, with the local surroundings and context. And the design happens almost as if you're you're trying to design a peer-to-peer kind of like support system, right? Where you are speaking to a peer who is equally as committed or as passionate in another sort of like district to sort of like test this out or uh, and to address the same sort of like problems in another sort of like district. Am I right? Yeah. On some level. How, how, how's that going? I mean, are you able to successfully, I uh, guess, in fact, you know, appear to sort of join your cause? Uh, yeah, or, so this is the participatory approach, yeah. right? So you have to recognize that as much as you come into the design process with the designer skills, yeah. right? you are always going to have someone to work with who knows exactly what they're working with because they work in that school. Mm. So they they know their context so well. 
I can go to 11 different schools and have sort of the same approach, at least at the beginning. Mm -hmm. But the people that I'm going to meet there, they know their context so, so well. Mm. And without them, the project would not be possible, mm. right? If I were just walking into a school, meeting the kids and designing with them without having any type of conversation with the teachers who know them so well, who know what the school is like, who know what the relationships between the teachers are and between the teachers and the principal as well and how they intend to use this little money that they give them to realize to actually implement the project. All of these elements are so, so important. Mm. And the way that we get them on board is different as well. Mm -hmm. So in some schools, it works if you, for example, engage the parents because mm -hmm. the parents are in the schools that we're working with sometimes are quite engaged with the life of the school. In other areas, maybe the catchment area of the school is much bigger. And so okay. families live far away from the school and the parents cannot come in because they don't have the time. So we have to find other ways. Sometimes it's talking to the local municipality. Sometimes it's making partnerships with other organizations mm -hmm. that are nearby. Sometimes it's even, you know, we have this thing called oratorio in Italian, in Italy, which is um, sort of a Catholic-driven youths mm -hmm. organization, okay. and they're attached to every church, ah, right? So okay. almost every church has one. And sometimes engaging with that okay. is, is a solution because they know the kids, mm -hmm. because the kids go there to play. So whoever is there right. is actually able to tell us more I about, see. you know, so there's, there's all these different layers. Mm -hmm. And the way that you engage with the school, I think, in my opinion, is that you not only engage with the people inside the school, but you also try and understand what is around it and okay. what is the system of relationships there that then can drive the project, mm. even when you leave. Because right. that's the other problem, right? I leave, and what happens? Right. Will this project continue? Mm -hmm. If I manage to convince people of how good this project is, maybe they will take it on board even if I'm not there. Mm. Okay. So I guess that's a sort of like really nice way of thinking about how so much of the kind of like design work you do is also about kind of like inculcating this idea of trust on some level in the participants sort of like involved in your project to be able to sort of like, you know, take on the project after, you know, funding has run out, for example, and stuff like that, because this is a long term thing, then funding is always going to sort of like run out at some level, right? Yeah. Uh, especially when you're testing these ideas sort of like out. Do you have examples of how it's being played out at the current moment in, in, in the schools that you have sort of like, you know? Yeah, so explored? building trust is a, a huge, huge element okay. of what I do. I think most of the time it boils down to being there for people. Okay. So you don't go into a school and then they never hear you, they, they never hear from you again for two months, right? You keep in touch you engage with the teachers, you call them, mm -hmm. you send reports, you also try and bring something to them. That's another element maybe that is, it's a bit different from trust. I, mm -hmm. I think it's more about reciprocity. Okay. So I know that I'm coming into this, into this school. I'm bringing some money, right? But this money is for the school. It's not for the teachers. Right. But I need the support of the teachers. You mm -hmm. see what the problem is there? Mm -hmm. Like teachers are giving a lot of energy to this project, but how are we going to give back? Mm -hmm. So sometimes we've tried to sort of give them maybe learning opportunities, mm -hmm. right? So we've, we've brought some tools that they might want to incorporate in their, in their work. But okay. we also recognize that this project has one 
flaw, which is that it doesn't account for all the work of the teachers okay. enough. Mm. Unfortunately, this is the problem with, with projects. The problem with projects is that a lot of the time they're funded in a way. And when you want to change how the money goes around in the organization so that it meets the needs of the people more, mm-hmm. you cannot do it anymore because the project has already been funded and everything is set. And mm. maybe that's a discussion for another time. Right. right. But all of these things sort of intersect in how you build trust with the organizations you work with. Great. Uh, I think we've sort of like run out of time. Thank you so much for sharing, you know, uh, that very sort of like enriching discussion. Uh, I had discussion lots of fun in this, on, uh, in this conversation. Thank you so yeah, much for no, having me. Thank you. I mean, is there a last sort of like, you know, takeaway point you want to sort of like share with us? I think one last thing that I can share with you, um, because I've talked uh, a lot about Italy, right, and the Italian context, but actually my research supervisor, Dr. Joyce is the co-founder of a network called Design and Social Innovation Asia Pacific. Okay. And you can find them at dziap.org, so it's D-E-S-I-A-P.org. Okay. And they also have a Facebook page that's DZIAP Network, and it's really a good place to go to to sort of learn more about design and social innovation in this part of the world as opposed to where I'm from. Great. Um, um, we'll share this online on our website. All right. Thank you so much, uh, Viola. Uh, you just heard from Viola Petrella, a postgraduate researcher and practitioner in design and innovation. And she's joined by Simon Soon and we've been talking about social innovation and relationships through design. Share your thoughts with us by tweeting us at BFM Radio or you can send us an email to nightschool at bfm.my. Don't forget to also download the BFM app which you can get on the Apple App Store and Google Play. Uh, thanks once again, Viola, and also Simon. Thank you. Thank you. I'm Hanif Baharuddin, and you've been listening to Night School on BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.